many of you have come to you know, know me pretty well over the last few years. And um, most of you know I'm not a huge uh, sport ball kind of person. I don't watch them. I don't really play them. I don't, I don't have a lot of involvement with them uh, with sports over the years. And uh, you also know I don't, I don't do a lot of storytelling when I, when I preach. Um, and I think sometimes because many, many uh, times when we try and tell stories or try and give comparisons, they kind of fall a little flat, if that makes sense. So today I'm going to be out of character. Not only am I going to kind of give us an example of what I'm talking about, I'm going to use sports as an analogy, so uh, help me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but I'm also going to give it kind of a caveat, which means a kind of a, a but for as an exception, and, and say you can't follow it too far through, if that makes sense. But I want, I want to talk about baseball for just a minute. Um, and just particularly because baseball is, is, it makes a lot of sense for this. You go to bat, the ball comes, you hit it, send it somewhere, and your goal is to what? Let's get to first base. And you get there, and let's just say it's close. Maybe somebody has uh, caught the ball and passed it over to, to first base, and they're trying to get you out, and you get really close, and you manage to touch the bag before uh, the ball gets there, and the umpire says what? Safe. Right? Calls, you, calls you safe. And somehow we all kind of know what that means, right? We, we have some idea of what that means. That means that the player is safe from being out and safe to continue to play the game. They get to continue to play the game. Maybe intuitively we understand what that language is, but if you'd never seen the game of baseball or never played baseball or know nothing about it, you wouldn't have any idea what that means. And I think many times in our lives, in our Christian walk, we get really used to using terms and concepts that maybe many of us understand very well. Maybe to those who are foreign to this idea, and they're not familiar with the language that we use or the scriptures that we preach from or have not heard people testify or share the truth, they don't really know what that means. So what does it mean to be saved? In a spiritual sense. What does that mean? And then... Good question. What are we saved from? And the second part of this question is, what are we saved for? Now, I've discussed this before uh, several times, but I want to spend a few minutes today trying to clarify what it is that when I stand up here and say, are you saved? Or we, take, we sing songs about being saved. Or we uh, talk about salvation. What does that actually mean? What are we saved from? And then the question is, what are we doing about it afterwards? And I think it's two parts. And so we'll kind of use a little bit of the baseball analogy to kind of help us carry that forward in case this helps bring you into some uh, thought process about what this means. Now, like I said, you can't carry that too far. Um, eventually, the, the metaphor, for example, doesn't really work its way out. But I want us to talk about it, think about what does it mean to be saved and what do we save from? This is a word we use all the time. It's almost kind of a, a churchy word, if you will. And if you go around and ask somebody, well, do you want to be saved? And they don't have any idea what you're talking about. They're going to say, well... Saved from what? Is someone going to get me? Am I going to fall in a hole? What am I being saved from? Right? That's a really serious question. If you look in the scriptures, you'll find the word used a few times. And in the New Testament, uh, the specific word has two different meanings to it. And I think both of them apply with what we're going to discuss today. The first uh, word means to deliver. The first version means to deliver. And the other means to protect. So we talk about saving, we can deliver, we can also protect. So let me give you an example. Uh, you can uh, save from something, as in you can be saved from drowning. If you're about to go under the waves, someone can come and throw you a rope and pull you uh, to shore. We would say you're saved from an unlikely or a likely death. You're saved from something. The other way that this word can be used, and again is applicable to what we're discussing today, is to save uh, for something, to be preserved, if you will. So if I'm going to collect uh, money for a purpose, we would call that I'm saving money for something, right? So we can be uh, saved as in from drowning, saved, delivered from something, but we can also save to preserve something for the future. 
And that word has two parts. And again, those two parts are both very important to what we're talking about today. So now that we've hopefully kind of set the context and we're talking about what are we saved from and what are we saved for, the two questions that we have for us today, let's go back to the very beginning in Genesis and kind of set the stage because Genesis gives us a clear picture of this. And so all the way to the very front of your book, Genesis 1.1, familiar ground likely. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And so we see the very first act of God in the beginning, as the scripture tells us, was to create uh, a world and give it light and dark. And you can continue reading, and what you see from that is God spoke everything into existence that we know today. The hills and the valleys, the mountains, the trees, the water, the river, the air that we breathe, all the animals, both those who uh, fly and those who swim and those who walk upon the face of the earth. God spoke everything that we know today and even some things that we don't know about into existence. Everything is here because of the power of his literal voice to speak something into creation. We believe very rightfully so that God did this as he said he did in a series of days, not over thousands or millions of years, not in one big bang, but instead, as the scripture records, he made by speaking all these things into existence. But God wasn't done God changed the technique by which he made things and he got very specific and he made us. He made us. The scripture records that he formed us, out, formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and then he breathed into the nostrils of Adam, departing a part of who he is, a part of his spirit, and man became a living being who is like God. Now, is not God, let's just go ahead and make that very abundantly clear. That seems to be a real problem we have in our society today. We have a lot of people who run around thinking they are God. We are like God in the sense that we have knowledge, that we have reason, that we have logic, that we can have a relationship with each other, that we have language and all different types of things. We have the ability to uh, take different things and create things out of them. We can paint and we can draw, we can make music, we can build amazing buildings. God has given us an amazing set of gifts when he breathed into us. But most importantly, he departed to us a spirit that can know him. Amen. That is different from the animals. It's different from creation. Now, don't think that God can't do the same for creation. In fact, the scripture reveals and says to us, if we don't worship and praise him, he'll make the rocks do it. And so don't think that we're so special here. Now we are, but understand that God made us for himself and he made us to have a relationship with him. He didn't make us to go in a corner and forget about him. He didn't make us that he would spend time doing whatever it is he does in heaven and never think about us. God made us because he wanted us to be in a relationship with him. Now think through that just for a second. This gets lost on us all the time. God made you so that you would know him and he would know you. You see, the world tells us repeatedly, really strongly today, those who act and pretend and think like they're God want to tell the rest of us that you're worthless, that you don't account to anything, that there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no purpose in life, there is nothing here but to, to live, I guess, and have a good life, and hopefully you can steal and cheat and do whatever you can to succeed by whatever standards you set for your own success, which is absolutely crazy. We talked about that last week. God has set a right way. 
And it is ours to abide by that right way. But listen, we go through life and we're told, and especially our young people are constantly told, you are worthless. There is no value. But listen to what I just said. God made man and put a part of his spirit inside of us. You have a little part of God inside of you, and he literally wants to know you. To know you to talk with you, to be with you. And if you look through the first few chapters of Genesis, that's exactly what we see, that Adam and Eve would be out and God would come in the cool of the evening and walk with them and talk with them. What did they talk about? I have no idea. What do you talk to God about? I don't know either. Did he come down and say, hey, Adam, how, uh, what all did you name today? Why did you name it? Did he go to Adam and say, hey, this, uh, this thing that uh, you called a giraffe, What do you think about that? I mean, that's a weird looking animal. Or a hippopotamus. Or pick anything that God's created. And what did he want? He wanted Adam and Eve to have a relationship with him. To know him and to come to love him because he loved them. This was the perfect design at the beginning. This is everything that it was to be in the first chapter of Genesis. We were to be like God with emotions and reasons and spirit and logic and to know him through his own breath that he put into us and to have that passed down all the way to you today. You are of immeasurable. That means you can't measure it value. That is how God loves you and that is how God thinks about you. Everything was great in the garden. There was no sin. What does that mean? Well, that's like trying to tell a fish what it's like to not be in water. The fish has no idea. We as people can't really have any idea what it's like to not have sin. What would it be like to have a perfect body? No pain. No hindrance. Full of strength. What would it be like to have an environment that's perfect without anything decaying? What would it be like to never have your favorite pet die? What would it be like for there to be no death at all? What would it be like for there to never open your cupboard and find some food that's rotten because there is no decay? We can't even hardly imagine what it's like to have a perfect world. And yet that's how God put us in this garden. He wanted us to have everything that he was. He wanted us to have perfection. He wanted us in all of that to praise and to worship him and to have a relationship with him. He created us for this. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created by him and for him. That's really different. Again, I'm, I'm really speaking. I hope, I hope you're picking up on this. This is different than what our society teaches us today. What does our society teach us today? Well, we're here for what? Ourselves. Everything in society tells us that. But you know why we're created? For him. Now, again, think about that for just a minute. Think about what a different concept that is. God created you. He put us into this garden of perfection. Everything was wonderful. Everything was beautiful. And why did he do it? Because he wanted us for him. He wanted us to be his special possession. Not in a tyrannical way, not in a way we might think about, but in a way, again, goes back to a deep relationship where we can know him and he can know us and we can walk on a daily basis with him, talk with him, share with him our day, celebrate him, praise him and worship him and have this relationship with him. All things were created by him and for him and his good pleasure. We do this so we can worship him so we can serve him, and so we can have a relationship with him. We see an example in Genesis chapter 5 of someone who got this right. Genesis chapter 5 and 21, we have only a few short verses about this person, Enoch. 5 and 21, Genesis. And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What does that mean? I'm not entirely sure. But I tell you what I do know that it means. It means that this man 
had a daily moment by moment relationship with God that was surpassing anything we can probably understand. But the other thing that I know from this is this is our model. This is how it should be with us. Wouldn't it be nice at the end of your life for others to say you walked with God? Brothers and sisters, I'd love to be able to say I did it successfully for a day. Wouldn't you? You can try all you want to. It's so hard. Why is it hard? Well, because sin entered the world. And sin is what separates us from God. Sin is this other word that we use sometimes in church, and we don't explain it very well. What does sin mean? Sin, the very root definition of it, means missing the mark. And so if I have a bullseye, for example, in archery, and I'm trying to hit this, and I miss, I have sinned, I have missed the mark. Now, while that may technically be the definition, it doesn't really capture the concept of what sin is. You see, what happened is God gave instructions for how we should live. And in fact, for Adam and Eve, He gave them one instruction, one, only one rule. And they didn't do it. Now, the reality of sin, the, 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 the struggle behind this analogy and why it kind of falls apart is because you and I, if we're in an archery competition and we're only like, you know, half a centimeter outside the bullseye, we'd be like, well, that's pretty good, right? I almost got it. But to miss the mark with God is to miss it entirely. Does that make sense? One small sin, no matter how important you think it is or it isn't, if you are outside of what God has told you to do, you might as well have missed the entire target. And so when sin entered the world, when Adam um, sinned and had pride and wanted to be like God, that then was passed down to all of us. And everything that has happened since, all the death, all the chaos that's in the world, all the wars and rumors of wars, all the heartache, all the things that our bodies hurt because of, everything that we go through started then and has continued because we have continued to miss the mark. We have continued to be disobedient to the God who loves us and made us. This, what does it do? It separates us from God. The very thing that we were created to be that's with God, now all of a sudden is separated from God. We are no longer with Him because of our sin. Now I've gotten way ahead of myself and a little excited. So let me back up. I asked two questions when we sat down. What are we saved from and what are we saved for? And I gave you a little introduction and talked about how Adam and Eve were created in perfection. They were given free will. That God loved them dearly and God wanted a relationship, a daily verbal relationship with them. That Adam sinned when he tried to be like God and was cast out of the garden, and sin entered the world, and all of a sudden we have this division between us and God. And I want you to hold that concept for just a minute, because I want to take these questions out of order. I want to ask, or I want to answer the, the second question first. What are we saved for? What are we saved for? Many of us are churchy people. We talk about salvation. We may know what that means. Many of you have a salvation experience. That is a time when God saved you. We'll talk about from what in just a minute. But here's the real question I want you to very seriously consider. If you're sitting here today and you know that you've been saved and you know what you've been saved from, here's the real question. What are you saved for? Because time and time again, let's go back to baseball. You ready? Many, many people they get to first base and they're told they're safe. And you know what a lot of people do? They go like out to the dugout and sit down. They don't keep playing. Or they wander around lost in outfield. Or they go become a spectator and watch everybody else play the game. Maybe they go back and try and bat again.
One of the deep problems with those of us who've been saved is we think that somehow getting to first base and getting saved was all there is to it. Amen. That's the furthest thing from the truth. That is only the beginning of the game of life, if you want to call it that. That is only the starting point from which the rest of our lives we are to walk with God. So why, what do we do after we're saved? What do we say for? To be with Him, to be back in relationship with Him. If God has saved you and you know that, the question is, what are you going to do about it now? Are you going to wander around and outfield lost? Are you going to go back to the life that you used to live before you were saved? Are you going to go to the dugout? Are you going to go watch everybody else play? The reality is this, no matter what your age, young to old to really, really old to the point you can't think you can do anything else in life physically, there is something for you to do, and that is to continue your relationship with God. But too many of us stop. Well, brother, I got my ticket punched. I hate that phrase. Y'all ever heard somebody say that? Y'all ever said it yourselves? I took care of that years ago. Well, what have you been doing since? What have you been doing since? And so I say that to myself. I say that to all of us. If you know what salvation is, if you already have answered the first question, what are you doing about the second? What do you say for? What's your purpose in life? Why are you still here? God wants him to be our greatest desire. Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8 is a verse that has changed my life. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy Lord? We can spend our entire lives asking God, what do you want me to do today? What about this? What about this? Should I do this? Should I go here? He's already told us. He's already given us a command. Those of us who are saved, what we're to do. I mentioned last week, I I got to go and take a little trip and I went. I know I've read that verse before. But I saw on a plaque dedicated to a building where I went to school probably three or four in the morning on night shift, and I stood there, and I looked at that verse, and I've never, ever forgot it. What has he told us to do? To do justly, to love mercifully, and to walk humbly with him. God will tell you the rest of it when you get there. Sometimes he'll give you very specific commands. Go and do this right now. Y'all experience that? Go talk to this person. Go say this. Send them a call or a text. Write them a letter. Give money to this people. Sometimes God will give you exact commands of what you're supposed to do. But when he's not doing that, what are we supposed to do? To love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's always the default of our entire lives. To do those three things. If you have been saved, if you've already answered the first question, what are we saved from? What are you supposed to do now to do those things? Are you doing justice? Are you loving mercy? Are you walking humbly with your God? God wants to be our greatest desire. What is your greatest desire? He wants us to know him. He wants us to hear his voice. He wants us to share our hearts with him. He wants us to seek to please him. He wants to become our all-consuming desire. Brothers and sisters, I've told you before, there's really nothing special about the men and the women in this scripture. And the men and the women through great history who have brought you the gospel for thousands of years 
The reason we are here today is because of faithful men and women who did not shy away from what God told them to do, but they walked humbly with their Lord and carried the gospel forward and forward and forward until it gets to you today, until it gets to me standing here before you to present the gospel to you. We are to be thankful for them, but they're not special in their own power. They're only special because they have walked closer with God and God has used them to fulfill his purpose. Many of you know one of my favorite Christian authors and men of God is A.W. Tozer. And he wrote, The goal of every Christian should be to live in a state of unbroken worship. To live in a state of unbroken worship. Are you living in that state? And I want to point out two things real quick. Knowledge about God is not the same as a relationship with Him. You can write that down if you need to. Knowledge about God is not the same as a relationship with Him. You can know all about me or someone else, but if you don't know me as in have a relationship with me, it's not the same thing. I've known people who have studied the Scriptures and know it better than I ever could, and they don't believe it's true. Knowledge about God and about the Bible is not the same as relationship with God. The second thing is very close to that. Activity for God is not the same as a relationship. I told you last Sunday I did lots of things for God when I was young before I was saved. I went on mission trips. I was at the church. I was in the youth choir. I was in the youth drama team. We did puppets did all kinds of stuff for God, but I didn't actually know God. So let me try and summarize. What do we do after we've been saved? More than knowledge, more than just activities, we are to build a relationship with God. A daily walk with him is what he desires, just like Enoch had. A daily walk to be saved is to have a relationship with him. Now, let me put a hard stop on that one and go back to the first question. Brother Ben, you've done all this. You've talked for a long time, and I know I'm going a little long today. You still haven't answered the first question. Saved from what? Let me try and answer that now. As I mentioned earlier, when I got a little carried away, history in the garden, however long it occurred, took a dark turn. They were given one rule to follow. That's it. And the serpent came and tempted Eve. And she took the fruit and ate. She took it to her husband, Adam, and presented it to him. The scripture says that Eve was tricked. It doesn't say that about Adam. Adam knew what he was doing. Adam willfully took the fruit of his wife knowing what it would do, knowing that he was sinning against God, knowing that it would break the relationship that he had with God, and he did it anyway. We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. And the moment that he took a bite of that fruit... Everything changed for the rest of history. Everything changed. The important part that I want you to see in this is in chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 3 of Genesis. I'm sorry, I'm in Genesis. Chapter 3 in Genesis, verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, a cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You see, when one little tiny disobedience entered, it caused a separation between Adam and God. And God drove Adam out of his presence to then be separate outside of the garden. And the whole world was cursed 
Death entered. Animals began to die. Crops and plants and flowers began to age and to die. We began to be weak. There began to be pain in childbirth. You women imagine that not being a thing before. We had to toil, the scripture says, to get food to live. How hungry do you think they got before they figured that out? How disappointed and desperate would you be to all of a sudden realize for the first time that you are without God? Go back to my example of a fish without water. What does a fish do to take it out of water? It flops and desperately tries to breathe. That's how Adam and Eve must have felt, to be separated from God, to have never experienced that before, to all of a sudden realize what happens when you stub your toe or you break a bone or you get hungry. But this is what I want you to understand. A sin, even seemingly a small sin, will separate us from God, and we can no longer have this relationship one-on-one conversation and walk with Him. Death has entered the world. And death is not only physical, but spiritual. Romans uh, uh, 6 and 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. That means for all the sin that we've done, we have earned what? We've earned death. And how often do we sin? All the time now. Because sin is a part of the world. Because we are separated. Psalms 5, 4 and 6 reads as follows. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Just so you're clear, that first part says, For you are not a God who delights in the wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. What the psalmist is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and recorded in the scriptures that we have today is God can have absolutely nothing to do with wickedness, with sin. And what is our problem? We are wicked and we are sinful people. We have been cast out of the presence of God and we cannot be reunited with him because we are covered in our sins, because we are shackled with all the things that we do, because we have been separated from him. We have a serious problem. We cannot come to God because God is perfect and because God is holy, because we are sinners and full of sin. Isaiah 59, 2 and 3 says, But your iniquities, your, think about yourself, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, So that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Do you know who that describes? Everybody here. Everybody ever living. And everybody since the day that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. These things separate us from God. Don't forget, why did God create us? To know him and to have a relationship with him. And our sins, my sins, not only the fact that I inherited a sinful nature, which I believe is passed down from Adam, but I have continued to sin against God by not doing what he wants me to do and by doing the things he tells me not to. The penalty for this is death and separation. Matthew 25 and 41, Then he will say to those in his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is where we're getting to the important part. What are we saved from? We've already answered what do we do with it. The question is, what are we saved from? What are we talking about? We're talking about being saved from the literal fires of hell. What we are talking about is that we deserve to be punished forever and eternally separated from God. To never actually get to know Him and to be physically punished and spiritually punished for all the wickedness that we've done. And trust me, brothers and sisters, we have done enough to deserve 
punishment. We must be saved from this awful state. And that is what we mean when we say and sing, Oh sinner, why, oh why won't you be saved tonight? This is what the scripture talks about when it talks about knowing him and seeking salvation. It is the reunification of us with God. But the only way that this can happen is with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because I can't earn my way there. Now just think about this for just a minute. If we could earn our way into heaven, don't you think Adam and Eve would have been able to get back in the garden? One sin. Now, how, how many of you have heard this? Well, I hope that I've done enough that God will let me in someday. I, that's a very common thing to say. I, again, right up there with drives me nuts. All right? Because if Adam and Eve could just do one good deed to erase the one small bad deed that they just did, don't you think they'd have got right back in? You ever thought about that? But they didn't, did they? No, they were cast out forever because of one mistake. You tell one lie, you're separated from God. And how many of you told a lie? Probably last week. Brothers and sisters, we have a tremendous problem. God does not allow us around him because of our iniquities, our sin. It has separated us, as the scripture says. And because of that, he must punish us. And there is no way to overcome that other than Jesus Christ. This is why from the beginning of the world, this was his plan to send his only son, who was fully God and fully human. That means that he was born without sin. And that means that for the 40 some odd years, 30 years, wherever long he was alive on this earth, he chose not to sin. That means he never told a lie. That means he never got unjustly angry. That means he never wanted to be equal with God. That means that he lived a life of perfection. Why? So that he could take my sin and I could be saved from what? From eternal separation from God and separation right now. So when we talk about being saved, this is what we're talking about. This is why it's so important that you are saved because it's not automatic. Or I would have no use today. If we're automatically saved because Jesus died for us, then there is no reason for me. But the scripture says he is appointed those to proclaim the gospel, the good news of this, so that you can seek him and you can be saved. Christ is the answer for all of this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One more, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let me try and back this up real quick. What are we saved from? Eternal punishment because of our sin, which we've all done. And we're saved from a separation from God while we have life here. That's what we mean when we say saved. And the reality is this, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve punishment. That is the default state. But God in his infinite wisdom, because he loved us so much, prepared a way out that we can be reunited with him and have that relationship with us. And how did he do that? He sent his only son to die for us. So our life is far from meaningless it's far from without purpose, and it's far from being about me. It's about him. It's about our love for him. It's about how much he loves us. He loved us when we didn't even deserve it. See, God has foreknowledge. That means that he knew when he created the world, and even before that, because God existed before, he knew you. Before your great, 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 etc. He knew you. And he wants you. He wants you to be saved 
from the eternal damnation that will result. He wants you to be saved today to know him and to have a relationship with him. This is the essence of the good news. This is what it means to be saved from eternal damnation. He knew you then and he knows you now. And what does God want for you? The same thing he wanted from Enoch, who walked with God. The same thing he wanted from Adam, which was obedience, to follow after him and to talk with him every day. God wants the same thing from us today, unbroken worship and fellowship with the God who deserves it. That's why you're here. That's your goal and your purpose in life, to love him with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He says this over and over again, Old Testament, all the way through the New. This is why we're here. This is what we're supposed to do. But unfortunately, we've been separated from him. So how are you saved? I hope I've shed some light into what it means when we talk about being saved. How are we saved from hell? Well, the Spirit of God, I've talked about three parts of God. It's the same God in three parts. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, as in one doesn't outrank the other. But they are three parts of God. They work together to fulfill a common purpose, and that is the salvation of us so that we might worship Him. And the Spirit of God is the part of God that works inside of us to draw us unto Him. I think it's the Spirit of God that tells us when we're wrong. Y'all have experienced this, right? When you say something, or you do something, or you think something, and you're not just sorry because you got caught, but you really go, oh, that is the Spirit of God telling you, "Uh uh-uh. The Spirit of God also works in those who are saved to lead and to guide and direct us to tell us to do something. Call this brother or sister and do it now. Give to this person. Attend Church, whatever it is that he tells you to do, that same, mm, when you just know that is the Spirit of God living and working inside of you, and he is desperately trying to draw you unto him. The problem we have is our own pride. Same problem Adam had. He wanted to be like God. We want to be like God too. And so we won't give in. But God calls us. And knocks constantly. And at some point, when you know inside that he is telling you, you do not belong to me, but you should. That is when you have the opportunity. That is when God has convicted you, is drawing you, as the scripture says, about your sins. And you are before him. Brothers and sisters, do not do anything during that time other than seek him and talk to him. That is your opportunity to go before him and say, God, I beg of you to save me. Not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, but because your son, Jesus Christ, who I believe in, has done it for me. Lord, help me get myself out of the way. Help me put everything aside. Help me put my pride aside or my faith in this or my trust in that and Lord take everything out of my life except for you so that I can know you and when you have done that when you're truly no longer I think relying on yourself or depending upon someone else when you've truly repented and sought after him I believe he will save you That is the moment of salvation. That is the time that you pass from death, as the scripture says, unto life. That is the point that you are, as the scripture says, a new creature. The old is past. Behold, all things become new. And you are reunited finally with the God who loves you and created the world and created you just to know you. And you get to start eternity that day and for the rest of time to be with him. The Spirit will tell you, it will testify to you when you've been saved. It will tell you that you have a relationship with Him. I've given you two messages today. Let me try and review because it might be complicated. First, I want to speak to those who 
and believe they've understood the message that I've given you, who have experienced the salvation that I talked about. What are you saved for? What do you do after you're saved? You live for Him. You worship Him. You try every day of your life repeatedly to live in unbroken fellowship and worship of Him. You try to be obedient to Him. You do whatever it is that He tells you to. Now trust me, you will continue to fail. I continue to fail every single day. But that is our goal. Those of us who've been saved continue to try and try and try. Here's the question. Are you fulfilling the purpose? We go all the way back to this horrible metaphor. If you've been saved and you've made it to first base, Have you just sat down? Really ask yourself that question. Have you gotten so comfortable with life that you've gone and joined the crowd to be a spectator of everyone else who's playing the game? Have you gone back to the dugout? Are you wandering around an outfield, not sure what you're supposed to do next? Brothers and sisters who know the Lord, God has something for you to do. It begins with knowing him. If you come to me after the service and want to know what God wants you to do, I'm going to send you right back to what? Daily fellowship with him. Because that is where it begins. He will give you guidance when you sit down and you talk with him, when you listen to him, when you are obedient to what he wants you to do, when you are being an Enoch Christian and walking after him, God will show you what it is for you to do next. And that changes from time to time. And that's okay. But there's one thing I know. There's no retirement age on service for God. You don't get so old so many years on and get to just quit serving him. Even in heaven, we serve him. We need to really ask ourselves this question. If you know that you've been saved, what are you supposed to do now? And are you doing it? For those who are here today who may not have been saved or are not sure that you've been saved from the eternal fire, from the eternal damnation, from the separation from God, we have a similar question for you. Are you going to seek God and repent? Is God working inside of your life to reveal to you that you are apart from him? You desperately need to be saved. Because at some point, this life comes to an end. Do you know what happens after that? You go to hell. Maybe I don't say that enough. You will go to a place of eternal separation from God without another opportunity. That is the reality of what we face. That is why this is so critically important that you know, that you know, that you know that God has saved your soul. Not that you have a beautiful, wonderful life. Not that you give everything that you want. But you know that God has reached down, that he has touched you, that he has drawn you, convicted you, that you have confessed your sins to him, that you fully believe in him. And he, with his spirit, has entered you and witnesses to you that you are okay. And until that has happened, you have accomplished absolutely nothing. And your eternal destination is sure. And that that being sure of hell. That's it. You might have a great life. Some of you might grow up to be incredibly wealthy and rich or famous and powerful or good looking or feeling whatever it is. But without God, it is absolutely nothing. And it will all disappear the moment you draw your last breath. And as we saw with our dear brother Blaine, his friend was not expecting to meet God yesterday. But it happened. Now, I'm not trying to put fear in you. Because you know what? I don't think I can. It doesn't work that way. 
God will. Brothers and sisters, you have an opportunity to actually have a relationship with God. To be saved from eternal separation now and forever and to actually know the God who made you, who knows you, who wants to save you, who loves you, who with purpose brought you into this world to fulfill his role and to know him. He knows you by name. He knows every single hair on your head. And that's a lot of hairs. He knows you that well, and he wants you to know him too. And he died his son to give you that opportunity. And so if God is working in your heart, if you know deep down inside there is something not right here, I know that I've sinned before God, and I'm not sure that I really know him. I don't know that I've really confessed and believed in him. I don't know that I've truly given up everything that I have, my reliance on my good works or my family or my church membership or whatever it is, and truly emptied myself to pour my life into him, to give it up to God and say, God, I cannot do this. I need your help. And if he's never saved you today, then today is the day of salvation. See, the rest of that scripture that I read earlier says, God's hand is not so short he cannot save you. You can't be so bad or so evil or so lost that he won't save you. You just have to seek him. There's no magic phrase, no magic words. I can't do this for you. If I could, I would. But I can't. Your mom and your daddy can't do it for you. The deacons can't do it. The church can't do it. Only God saves. Only God works in your life. And if you feel separated from him and not confident that you are saved, then he is the only one you need to deal with. And so we're going to have a hymn. We call this an invitation. An invitation is actually kind of a newer thing among churches. It's not a, a historical trend much past about 100 years ago. But we're going to do that today. We're going to join in this tradition. What does this tradition mean? This is an opportunity for you who are sinners who need to be saved to seek God until you are saved. You can do that at your seat. You can do that anywhere. We've had brothers and sisters in this church get saved in their easy chairs. We've had them get saved stopping at a gas station after they left church. We've had them saved all kinds of places. We've heard testimonies of where you maybe were in the church building when you got saved. We've had some who've been saved the moment they stood up to come down here. Why? Because that's what it took for them to fully surrender to what God wants in your life. But whatever it takes, you must do that. And if that means you need to come down here and pray until you are satisfied that God knows you and you know him, then that is what you are to do. And this is your opportunity to do that. And for those of you who know him, what does God want you to do right now? He wants you to pray for those who don't. He wants you to pray for those who don't. So let's not fail God today.